This is Paul Axton, and I wanted to point you to our new Patreon page that we do have various levels that you can support, and that as a member, then you can receive benefits through the various levels. We do appreciate any support you might give, as we are a donation-based ministry. In this podcast, Matt Welch, Jonathan Toddy, and I discuss the recent work of David Bentley Hart that all shall be saved, heaven, hell, and universal salvation. Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hart makes the point somewhere, I think in the podcast or something, says, well, ask Mother Teresa if she was free to go to Calcutta or not. It's almost like your sort of nomic free will shrinks or almost disappears, and that's precisely what theosis uh, entails. And Paul, I think that's the great value of the work that you've done in, in your book, is to show that whatever those finite choices that we make that we would presume or imagine constitute ourselves, it results in just a pure fiction. It's an empty form of subjectivity precisely because those choices are made for the finite or made because of our slavery to really to what your book says is you even say it sort of more severe than that. And that is, is that it's actually the nothing that's constituting to me. It's like, okay, we can either be constituted by God himself, you know, the Trinitarian sort of wellspring of all that is and all that is good, you know, or that we can sort of quote unquote freely choose what is essentially nothing and thus become nothing ourselves. But to rewind a little bit, that brings us back to our discussion on freedom is, is that I think that's precisely what Jesus has come to save his creation from, because that's all the situation that all of us find ourselves in. Again, that's what your book does such a good job at showing is the drastic, terrible situation that human beings find themselves in because of sin, because of orientation to death, that God has to break in and rescue his creatures. And to imagine that some of us get it right and some of yeah. us grasp onto it, but, but that the vast majority of us miss it. And that in this brief sojourn, that failure that you're, and again, you're born into a terrible situation that your book really does both uh, in, you know, in the interior sense and in the exterior sense, you're born into this fallen world to imagine that, boy, I guess I'm glad that I got it figured out, you know, but what about those poor souls who didn't? Again, it goes back to the more central, more primary narrative of God's goodness of God being the Savior, Him being the rescuer, uh, of Him being a good father to His children who are in this desperate situation, imagining that the very thing that enslaves them is their freedom. Yeah, I think that's right, Matt. That's key. I mean, this is the grand tragedy of people, I think, imagining that Romans chapter 7, 7 and following, is a depiction of the normal Christian life. Because I think what he's depicting there is life in the first Adam. He almost says as much, you know. That's right. No, yeah, I think so. And that is that you're always in this agonistic struggle in which the choice is seemingly, if you think of it, the, the law over and against the law of the mind, over and against the law of the flesh, that it is that idea of of freedom i mean i guess you could see it it is actually slavery it's an enslavement mm-hmm. so if we as hart does if we think in terms of the way these early greek fathers thought 
so that what was created created humanity say before the fall there is an absence of this gnomic deliberative type of will that we would take to be freedom but at the same time these aren't beings that have been brought to their perfection so there's a weakness there and that's what we need christ for with the fall comes this added enslavement to this gnomic will or the idea of we can make ourselves what we would want to be in and through our deliberative decisions. This type of newfound radical freedom that we have allied ourselves to, which is really, you know, a nothingness, a falsehood, a fiction. I think that's then what the incarnation and the cross is the answer to both of those things, both in allowing us to come back into God's teleological plan for us, but in such a way that we're also being strengthened and our beings such that, you know, all come to have a more enduring relationship with God. So even by what you just said, where does the certainty come? Well, I think the certainty, I don't know exactly if this is hard certainty, but the certainty that I think we can have is that picture in Romans 7 is not God's will for all people, and that God is, through Christ, bringing all people into a relationship with himself that is both free from sin and death, what we would take to be freedom itself, but also a relationship in which we become strengthened, uh, deified, Mm -hmm. divinized, you know, however you want to think about it. But it it really is in some sense also a strengthening of our being. And I think that's why soulish man versus fleshly man versus whatever, that the idea of the strengthening that's taking place there does seem to be an embodied permanence that we gain in the second come the resurrection from the dead and so on and so forth into eternity paul i guess i want to i want to ask you know in light of the work that you've done this has been a question i've been asking you for years and i think we've been trying to work through it and that is is that you paint this this picture of that terrible slavery or bondage to a lie to a deception to an ego formation that's grounded in a pure sort of nihilism it's very bleak right And it's like, to me, I've always asked you, well, what's the way out? You know, what's the entry point? What's the salvific's entry point whereby someone can be saved from that condition? And what happens to those people who don't, who aren't chosen some theologies or or whatever else? It's like, and so to me, that's the, that's another compelling part of what David is saying in his book is that, well, actually Paul's whole argument of Romans is precisely what you're saying, but that it culminates in chapter 11, verse 32, and that is is that everyone has been bound and shut up into this terrible situation, precisely so that God might show mercy to everyone. Because to me, and again, it's germane to to the discussion in the sense that what's primary? In my opinion, what has to be primary is God's goodness, God's love. God's mercy, God as Savior, God as Father, God as Rescuer. Even John brought up the, the story of in Genesis 3, and Hart points out the Eastern Fathers, the way that they read that, was that Adam and Eve were sort of, they were ignorant. It's precisely in their ignorance that they were given over, you know, to the ability to even begin to deliberate, you know, on, on whether they should listen to the serpent or not or whatever. And so he's saying that that's very true to the story. But of course, that's all of our stories. We're all in this together. So I guess the point is, is that, well, you can either fall deeper and deeper into that black hole, that abyss that you're describing uh, of the sort of nihilistic form of human subjectivity outside of Christ. For some of us, we hear the gospel and we listen and we repent and we turn and we're, and we're saved and, um, and praise God. Thank God for that, right? There's nothing better than theosis, as John said. It's right. It's joining, being joined to God. But 
I guess in the end of the day, we would imagine maybe that that was our, again, we would want to be our savior. We would say, well, actually I chose. It was me. I listened. I, you know, I, 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 I repented. I chose, I followed, I returned away. It's like, like we would ultimately kind of put the onus on us. Right. And that's always been the reform sort of critique, which, you know, maybe that's rightly so. Right. It's like, they're saying, Hey, you're imagining that in some way that you can, make a choice because of some island of righteousness that you have that other people can't make. Whereas I think in some way Hart's argument is transcending the whole discussion. Okay? Right. Actually, nobody has the, you know, it's all grace. It's all God's goodness. And it's the, if the reformers miss anything, it's that God has actually elected in, in Christ all of humanity, all of that which he has made, that he will join back to himself. Any rational being that he has made, he will save. And that's the good news. I always get a little confused with uh, contractual theology and even Augustinian notions or Calvinistic notions of total depravity. Mm -hmm. uh, because it seems like they're positing the idea that man is totally incapable, but simultaneously holding to a kind of contractual understanding that nonetheless people have a given understanding in terms of available light or the law, and that it's on the basis of their rejection or not keeping the law that they'll be damned. In other words, you would think that total depravity or even the idea of, of man's failure would then point to the necessity of an apocalyptic breaking in. But unfortunately, that's not what you get. It is just the perversity of Calvin. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that's a good point, because uh, Hart says in an interview, you know, he's talking about this, he says, you know, the Calvinists actually aren't the most interesting people on this subject because of their sort of perverse consistency. But Thomists, I mean, in the worst sense of that word, these Baroque Thomists and the people running around today, especially it seems like in this country, advocating for the same kind of thing, are maybe the most baffling. Because, you know, Aquinas himself was, as Hart says, sort of a cold-blooded predestinarian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean not in the same way that Calvin. Double is, predestinary. But, he said cold uh, blood, cold blooded double. Yeah, yeah, he is, and it's not in the same. It doesn't take the same form as Calvinism. I think we have to be fair in that sense because he's working with a different uh, sort of set of metaphysical presuppositions. But this is why I never in Aquinas can really get past the first bit because after the doctrine of God, I mean, oof, it gets it gets pretty rough going after that. But you have these these people today claiming to be Thomists that want to take joy in the suffering of the damned and at the same time think that they have some kind of choice that they have made that's rescued them from being counted as one of those damned people and that those damned people have uh, made choices that have uh, accorded them their eternal fate, which just isn't consistent. And so I think this is what you're pointing to, Paul, that actually doesn't any of this sort of theology uh, total depravity, or uh, this idea that there is real damnation, wouldn't that sort of actually necessitate that what Christ is doing is a complete inbreaking or overturning of that system? Like, how can both things continue for eternity? And I, is that the question you're asking? Yeah, that I... That was the question I was asking. You, you asked it a lot better, but that was that's kind of how I was trying to get at it, is 
um, I, I think it plays directly into your work, Paul, that you've done. Yeah, and I think Art may be right uh, in the case of Calvinists and Thomists that that is the community that takes sadistic glee in being, you know, one of this small group of folks that have finally understood the mind of God. And, uh, you know, everybody else is damnable for not being as cool as they are. You sort of get that attitude from both Thomists and Calvinists. I thought this was a really good place to quote, yeah. to quote where Hart says, you know, he says that for some of these folks that you're describing, you know, hell is practically the best part of the story. That's right. That's it, gives, exactly it, gives, right. It, it gives them a sense of belonging to a very small company, a very special club, and they positively relish in the prospect of a whole eternity in which to enjoy the impotent envy of all those resentful souls that have been permanently consigned to the gate, you know, the neighborhood outside of the gate. It's the sort of prestige that cannot be bought with, at the, you know, where the common people shop, he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I actually think, I think he's on to, so this is kind of a funny point, but I think this is something we could run with. Because in a way, this reflects the uh, practice or the ideology that most of us would identify as being both evil. It's the same thing with Nazism. It's the same thing with sort of tribal violence. It, it's always exclusionary to the extent that the reason for excluding other, and this is, Paul, this is you, uh, this the exclusion is to reinforce the fact that we that are excluding everybody else are somehow, you know, we've made it, or we're real people, we've come into being. And that seems to be the story of human evil. And I think you don't have to pull that back very far to realize how banal it is. It is just people being insecure. And isn't it really, uh, if we want to talk about just desserts, that universalism actually is in case the fact and the the sheer disappointment that all of these the overturning of evil is just to say nope god has acted and everybody gets in i mean i think in some way that really is an answer to those of us that need an answer to these sort of people yeah he, he says he's i like that you said just deserves because it reminded me of a, of a quote that i have here that it says you know heart actually agrees with the reformed tradition that for Christian thought in general, the questions, uh, the question of one's just deserts before God is as irrelevant as it was, for instance, for the woman taken in adultery. Yeah. Um, that is, if, if, if what the New Testament says about God is true, then it is God's will not to repay us according to our merits, but to simply claim for himself those of his creatures who have been lost in slavery to death. Yeah, and so I think it's no wonder that the New Testament describes this as torment and, and i think if we think in terms of deification or theosis it even makes sense that what happens to the sort of person that comes into the full presence of god who just cannot stand to think that perhaps uh, others are there too or something like that i think that maybe that's where some of us will start and again this is all this becomes very speculative so i take paul's point that well we can we can know for certain um, what the cross does in our lives now. But I think we do, we can't allow for eternity or this universal salvation as looking like all of us coming to the presence of God and some of us really not being ready to be there, or more importantly, not ready for others to be there. So if that's where we begin to grow into that presence, I mean, I don't think it's too hyperbolic for Jesus to be referring to that as torment. And trying to sort this out and acknowledging that there are two discourses taking place. There's a discourse about creation, there's a, a formal cause, 
and there is an understanding that is unfolding through the cross of Christ. And I think that it's important to understand that there are the both things, but it's also important, and this I think this is my, as I've put it, a niggling little criticism, and I want to stick with the hopeful universalism, because I think that puts the focus in the right place. That puts the focus where we are, that we are then understanding and apprehending primarily on the basis of the work of Christ. To just nudge it a little bit and to go back over to a philosophical indubitability or a dogmatism, it sounds like a very slight thing, but I think that there is an inherent danger that this is the genius of Bonhoeffer that he recognizes in ethics. And that is that probably the liberals that he was dealing with were universalists. Their problem was not their universalism. Their problem was a kind of incapacity for understanding the specificity of evil and the engagement of Christ in real-world evil, because their Christianity was such an abstraction. It was so futuristic. I'm not saying that there is not that side to it, but I'm afraid that that emphasis, if we let it run too far or we give it too much weight, then we'll take away from our own real-world engagement with evil and enacting justice. Like, I think that's a really interesting question to focus on and think about because there's there are different ways that there are multiple possibilities, in other words. So I think it's equally as valid to say, well, the whole problem with uh, liberal Protestant universalism is it's so utterly and thoroughly nominalistic. It's completely devoid of anything transcendent and it's utopian rather than cosmic. And if you approach it in that sense, it's just as easy to say, well, the, the problem there being is that the, the fallacy is to think that universalism doesn't entail a change for us, or it doesn't entail some kind of you know, reckoning with those bits of ourselves that are false. I think you could just as equally approach it in that way and say, well, that's, that's the issue, that's the problem. So, which comes to a question of motivations then, because I, I think what I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, if we focus on Christ, we end up with something that's very good. It's the sort of practical theology that understands Christ, the cross of Christ as overcoming sin and death and evil in a in real world experience. And that's something highly favorable. And so there's a motivation to want to focus on the cross as being primary in that sense. Is that where yes. you're coming from? Yes. So I, I think like that's good. There's definitely that motivation. But what if, as one progressed in the spiritual life and focused on those not philosophical arguments, but even just the bits of Scripture that seem to be assuring us that all will be saved, and then our motivation for doing the same thing, seeing a real-world defeat of evil and sin and death, doesn't come so much from the impetus of needing defeat sin, death, and evil, but realizing how minuscule sin, death, and evil is in reference to the fact that what God is doing is, is assured to us. Evil is nothing. Evil will be defeated. All will be saved. 
I think Art sounds sort of, well, he just says, you know, he's being very arrogant in this argument, but there is the aspect of early Christianity where the Greek fathers will say up front, there are some mysteries that we're not going to divulge to initiates. And I, mean, I, I, think, of, yeah. Yeah, I think about my own journey in Christianity, like there was definitely a time where there's no way I could have conceived that, oh, the, the gospel is good news, such to the point that God is saving everybody. Like, I really needed to think about it in terms of the universality of the gospel being, well, God is universally destroying sin, death, and evil. But that's still allowing this negative, and I mean negative in the sense of this nothingness or this lie, to be so upfront and center as, as even being the point of the incarnation. I think perhaps as you become more and more comfortable with the fact that God is making all things right, and there's nothing we can uh, do about that either for or against that, that fact or that reality, might become more and more comfortable with saying, I don't have everything figured out, but I certainly trust that God is redeeming everything, reconciling everything. And the motivation then doesn't have to be, oh, all my, the impetus is on defeating sin, death, and evil. But the impetus is on, well, that's really nothing, and I'm just going to grow and increase in the love of God. I, and I think that's what Hart's getting at, in not so much in the book necessarily, but in the interviews he's given about the book, is saying, well, to get universalism in a Christian sense, you have to first think in terms of theosis or divinization. And I, that's just been the point that I, I don't think it's contrary to what you're saying at all. I think it's actually just the other side of that, or that's the uh, that's the inevitability. I think that's where the certainty can come from. It's a very slight difference, but I, you know, thinking here of the what's the young lady? Oh yes, Greta Thunberg. You just have to admire. Hey, we may be all going to hell in about twenty years, but man, look at what you know. Here's this fine individual that at least yeah. somebody yeah. raising their voice in anger and and despair. In other words, to get a, a Greta Thunberg, that one has to be invested in reality. One has to be invested in this world's reality. Two things can come into play here. One will be, well, you know, we can kind of sit back and in a kind of comfortable fashion and say, well, you know, God's going to work it all out. No worries here on my part. You silly fools running around. The sky is falling. Oh, we really don't need to do anything. Oh, you know, the, this Hitler character, he's really not that bad. This Trump fellow, he's really God's man in the White House. Sure, he does some evil, but, you know, it's all going to work out. And so I'm afraid that a comfortable universalism can take on the look of a despicable evangelicalism. Yeah. And it's a very slight difference. In other words, we do want to realize that we're engaged in a real world overcoming, that we are God's instruments of reconciliation. And there is a huge impetus that falls on the importance of what we do and the justices that in our own sphere of influence that we work out. Yeah, that's right. I'm glad you put it that way, because I think this is a really, that's a better way of looking at it. And so 
what I'm trying to say, where I think the certainty comes from theosis, is that we know God's going to work it all out, but that isn't apart from this reality or the reality of who we are ourselves. And we ourselves only get worked out by being willing to engage in this work in reality because it's all of creation that's being reconciled. And I think that's the point. That, that would be my critique of, well, having read the blog that you published this morning, I think that's entirely fitting for the way most Western Christians that have come to the fact of universalism as a certainty have gotten there. I do not think that's what Hart is doing, though. I think that that's actually, it's an impossibility for the certainty of universalism to be a, oh, God will work it out in the future if you're committed to understanding salvation as theosis. Not to mention the fact that, I mean, I don't know, you know, let's just say for uh, sake of argument that if Jesus was the universalist, if St. Paul was universalist, Origen uh, and others, I mean, you know, Maximus, uh, his tongue was cut out. All right. You know, there, there's a reason why, you know, the, the powers, they were certainly engaging the powers. That's right. And, and, the, and, the, and, the, and they were putting, they were crucifying, beheading them, cutting out their tongues, burning them at the stake. That's the sort of annoying thing that you, that you hear with um, universalism often is the charge that it's some sort of this, it's cheap. You know what yeah. I mean? That it's this sort yeah. of cheap, uh, well, everything's going to be fine. But in my, you know, I've been reading through Origin. I've been reading through a lot of the different fathers on this. And it's like, I've never been more afraid of whatever the, the fires of Gehenna must, must entail than I am, uh, you know, since I've been reading through this stuff over the last year. Because whatever it is, it's not cheap. So that is what I'm trying to say. And I just thought of a way of saying it is that universalists should be more committed to missions than Christians who even believe they're saving people from hell. Because what the universalist understands is the work of eternity has already begun in themselves. And the whole point of being in the whole point of creation, the whole point of existing, the whole point of being reconciled to God and having everything else reconciled to God is to become like God. That's what we were made for. And once you realize that's the only uh, purpose of your entire being the only way that can be worked out is by living in reconciliation with creation. And I think that's so fundamental that that's why you have people like uh, the early Christians who are universalists also engaged with the powers and principalities at the level that they're becoming martyrs. So that it, it's actually cheaper in a way to think that, oh, I'm going to go be a missionary because I'm going to be involved in saving people from this horrid fate. I mean, what a selfish endeavor. And I, that's what universalism does for us. It says, well, no, actually, it's not, it's not really about the, the joy we either get from watching people burn in hell or from rescuing people from burning in hell. The joy that we get is that we are doing the work of God, the work God has made us to be, that we are united with Christ because we are living out God's purpose for us and for all things. And just in a purely existential, I mean, I really like this, um, this argument, you know, the heart just kind of mentions in passing, he says, if you really do believe in eternal conscious torment, can you bring a child into the world in good conscience, knowing that uh, the yeah. vast majority of human beings may, there's at least a really good chance that the child that you brought into this world that otherwise wouldn't have been brought into this world is going to go into eternal torturous, you know, perdition or whatever. And he says, so and the implication of the argument, of course, is, is that since God is the savior of all human beings, 
which the Bible just says. I mean, it just says that the New Testament. Exactly. Again, yeah. so it's like I don't, I don't want to like. To me, it's like this isn't all just like philosophical sort of you know smoke and mirrors or theological whatever. It's like take a look at the passages of Scripture, study them, look at them. That they're quite clear in many ways. All right, and so it's like, but to me, it's like, well, if you could in full confidence say, well. God is the savior of all human beings. Therefore, I'm going to have as many children as I can. That's right. Precisely, you know what I'm saying? Because I know that God is good. I know that he's going to save them. That's right. I know that they're not going to go into eternal conscious perdition, perhaps because I know that they're not going to even be annihilated, but precisely because I believe that whatever life that I participate and cooperate with God, you know, in the bringing that life into this world is going to one day be united with him in perfect love and in goodness forever and ever. Yeah, that's right. And so the same thing, I think this is really the only way to be a Christian and care about creation. Or this is really only the, uh, to be a Christian and care about other people. All It comes down to the same thing. If our motivation for saving the planet, for being against, you know, our only motivation for recycling is because it might save us from, you know, <laughs> famine or stronger tsunamis, larger hurricanes. That's the most selfish reason to do anything. The reason that we should be motivated for care of creation is because God loves creation, has created it, and has eternal plans for it. And I think that's why, actually, from a certain perspective, a certainty of God is reconciling all things to himself actually gives us a greater impetus to go out there and uh, be Christians in the world. And we're called to participate. We like, I mean, it's just quite clearly, we're called to participate in that redemption with Christ. Right. It's going to entail suffering. It's going to entail possibly martyrdom. All right. And all these different things, you know, because you really are going up against those powers that say that, no, actually death has the last word. Actually, we, violence has the last word. And so as like, I guess I'm, I'm not sure. And again, I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm like, you know, a universalist, uh, a dogmatic universalist on like the level of, of someone like Hart. I guess I'm not quite sure I'm to that point. But I can say that it really does give you a total confidence. Think about it. It gives you like a total faith. And what is faith? It's like, well, we can even say it gives, you know, even the hope that you're talking about, Paul. It's like, well, don't you have that hope that universalism is true because you actually believe that it would be the best outcome of the story? The or reason because the, you believe the, the, that it's uh, you know consistent with who God is. Well, and, and, and what the scripture says. But but, <laughs> but but what I'm saying is, is it's like you could have sort of like a cautious sort of hope. But what I'm saying, and it's kind of a powerful argument that well, the reason why you have that hope though is because you believe that uh, it's the best possible outcome. And, and, and so if it's the po best possible outcome that all people, that all things, that all rational wills are, are saved and that everything is, that is created will be joined to God, well, perhaps God is able to bring that to pass. And that's the reason why you have that hope is because you know that it's in your heart that it's good, that it's the best possible thing. And so then to not believe it would almost in some way betray, possibly the scriptures, first of all, <laughs> but, but, but you know what I mean, to, to maybe betray that hope. So. I'm okay with kind of a cautious, yeah, I know you wouldn't want to call it a cautious universalism, but, you know, maybe more of a hopeful, hopeful, hopeful universalism. Yeah, that's yeah, very hopeful. Christian, a very good Christian word. Word, that's right, that's right. Balthazar used, and I think it does capture the correct tone. And so that's my only critique. So what, that we hope that God will save all over and against doing 
something awful. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think that's what Hart's getting at. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, not that. On, people. Not that. I hope God's actually good. Yeah. Um, I think actually hope, I, to be honest with you, I don't buy, I, I don't buy it. I think the only reason Balthazar put the argument the way he did is because he was accountable to a magisterium, period. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they, well, come on. He wanted to, <laughs> just, he wanted I, I to keep his job. Yeah, that may be. Yeah. That may I be. mean, I don't. I just don't think it works. I think our hope is that what is happening in reality is this is being worked out. I mean, and that's where hope comes into play. Hope allows us to participate in something we know is for certain that we cannot see or it does not existentially feel that way on a day-to-day -day basis right but yeah, i don't think the, there's any way to say well i only hope god's gonna have justice yeah and that's end. not the nature of <laughs> christian hope that's not the exactly. nature of christian hope and so the assurance <laughs> of things hoped for is what i'm describing there you well, go see I, there's certain and i i really think that's what Hart's saying too he's just saying there's no reason to be timid about saying i'm a universalist or i'm not and so you've already gone beyond Balthazar because you, I think at the beginning, we all agreed to be universalists. My, my little tiny critique <laughs> is the tone. Yeah, well, I mean. The tone, the tone is important and the perspective. In other words, my point mm -hmm. is the tone arising from a perspective. Our perspective is one of hope. And that should set the tone. That's I'll true, but I'll give you that too. But I, but I guess I would want to push back a little bit and say that, yeah, but is it for Paul? The resurrection is more than a hope. It's a certainty. It's a, yeah, form, of right. certainty. It's a form of It's a form of knowing he's certain about it. He, he couldn't be more certain about it. The resurrection it's, it's, of all things is a certainty. All right. Now that's, that's to go even further <laughs> with it. But at the very least. <laughs> Romans chapter 8. For, yeah, rather yeah. But at the very least though, for Saint Paul, he's saying that yeah, but the resurrection of Christ and yeah, the, the sort of the judgment, all these different things, it's like it's certain. It's going to happen. And it's, so it's like and he's not ashamed of saying something, I hope that it happens or I hope I mean he's saying it's I'm certain of it. In fact, it informs the entire foundation of my entire theology is the certainty of the of resurrection. And for me, that means just means, well, that's the overthrow of death, all right? That's yeah. the victory over evil and things like that. And I think to say that, well, it's one thing to say that, I mean, what is our hope? Well, our hope is like in 1 Corinthians 13, it says that love never fails. Yeah. That's our hope. It, and actually, and so I to reiterate, be certain, by the way. I mean, I, I just yeah, want to say, so, just, just real quick, I, I just want to say that, like, I think that we can be fairly certain that love never fails. And so whatever what that I, so must mean. Matt, I'm a total agree. You said what I was trying to say earlier better. And that's what I mean. Hope is the way we participate in what we already know is certain. Because without hope, I mean, you would wake up on any given day and see the, the state of things and say, oh, there's no way. Hope is the way we continue to participate in what we know is true. And that's that Christ's resurrection, eternal life has the last say. That but God is it. real. That yeah. gets it. There, is, there are different kinds of certainty. And I'm not saying that Hart is guilty mm -hmm. of a Cartesian modernist certainty. But I think we need to point that out, that the philosophical certainty that arises in modernity is, stands over and against a Wittgensteinian, which, what I would call a biblical notion of certainty. And I think we need to then sort out the discourse and understand that ours then is a certainty based on hope.
Well, I know the certainty is based on God. <laughs> Hope is the way. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I would not. I, I totally. Just, I think you may have. I think you could say that better. I'm not questioning what you mean. I just but I no, but I'm, I'm not God, and that's the point. Yeah, but our certainty is not based on hope. My on, certainty is not it's based on our on hope in who God is. In other words, uh, my I don't. Is based I, on I what don't God know, has said. I don't know the mind of God. I don't have a God's eye view of things. I don't have a divine perspective. No, but you have all these scriptures saying that all will be saved. And I can trust that and hope. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. Like, my, uh, my certainty isn't based on that I hope that's true. But you understand there's a, there's a huge difference between a modernist understanding of certainty. It is precisely taking a God's eye point of view. In yeah, which, I know, but Hart's not doing that. I, mean, come on. I, I said as much. <laughs> I yeah, said yeah so I'm just saying, like... And so that's the distinction that needs to be made, is that there is this understanding of certainty. I'm not accusing him of doing that all the time. But if you do not sort out the different modes of arriving at certainty, the danger is, then, that we will imagine that we can take a God's-eye point of view of things, and that is not uh, to take into account a biblical understanding of either hope or what it means to have faith in Christ. Yes, but I still wouldn't say the phrase, my certainty is based on my hope. I hope in the certainty revealed in Scripture. I mean, I, I think that's right, Hart's point. Right, he yeah. translates the New Testament. He says, oh, wouldn't you know, look, there's all of these verses about eternal judgment that are actually quite ambiguous, and then there's all these verses about universal salvation that don't seem as ambiguous. Uh, maybe I'll write a footnote to that. Your point's well taken, but the, the, uh, the difference is that there is then a mediation between us and God. There is a mediator. There is Christ. And our relationship to God is that that is found in Christ. And so Christian faith is then to put ourselves in relationship to God as found in Christ. So when we talk about theosis, if that means that we in some way become identical with or become God, I don't think that's what it means. but Well, nobody's claiming that. Right, and so I think that can be the misunderstanding, that we always are going to describe our own understanding as mediated to us. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, who's disagreeing with that? I mean, Hart certainly not. That's, I guess that's my point, is like, if you qualified your critique by saying, well, in Western theology especially, perhaps in Eastern theology too, post-Reformation, we have come up with a way of thinking about certainty. We have come up with a way of thinking about universalism that is not cosmic, that is not dependent upon who God is, but is dependent upon who we think God has created us to be, essentially that we can figure everything out. Like, sure, that's, that's a, a real critique. But, I mean, that's not how does that pertain to Hart's book? <laughs> it's, I guess, it, only, it only pertains to parts of it. And it pertains to his parts when he's talking about creation ex nihilo. 
but he says that creation ex nihilo is adequate as a revelation of who God is. I need more context for why you have a problem with that, because that's essentially what the church has always believed, that creation ex nihilo is so, sen- I mean, this is the Gospel of John, um, that God is not created. Everything else is created. God is infinite. All else is finite. So that distinction is always, in the East, that's like the most fundamental theological statement you can make, because then what you have in the incarnation is God taking upon finite, uh, you know, a finite nature, mm-hmm. so as to allow for a real participation between finitude and, and God himself. And again, it's not the argument from this formal cause to final cause that I have a problem with. It is that to imagine that, in other words, when you said, oh, well, that's exactly what John is saying. Yes, but notice the way in which he's saying it, that he's saying that we have apprehension of creation ex nihilo in and through the person of Christ. Because we are human, we're fallen, we're finite. And so our understanding even of that, you know, of creation, I believe, comes to us only in and through the revelation that's given to us in and through the Logos. Well, who doesn't? Yeah, I think we all believe that. I think that we all believe that, right? I guess I quote Hart, if you notice, I quote him, and he says, I think I was quoting him verbatim, he says that creation ex nihilo is adequate or truly enough. In my opinion, actually, I went back and I started reading The Beauty of the Infinite. The thing that I guess I didn't notice when I read it the first time, I just don't think that I was ready to understand what Hart was saying there, is that he was saying something very important, that to imagine that in some way faith and reason that, that aren't unified, and to imagine that really all of this stuff that we're talking about, I guess I'm just wondering that since God is one, can we maybe think about things like faith, hope, love, certainty, knowing. In other words, like maybe those things are the one. They're unified. They're uni- And that part of what modernity has done is to sort of shatter the unity to say that, oh, well, there's faith and there's reason. And so you got to, you know, the, the, um, I think this is part of um, Hart's problem with Kierkegaard, for instance. It's like, because what he's saying is, is that, well, that's to deny the goodness of creation, that actually that, that faith and reason and hope and knowing and all these different things, Christian, properly understood Christianly, are, are perfectly unified. And so to delineate the to delineate them in any way, sort of like you know fracture them out or whatever, is to by definition misunderstand their relationship to one another and to the world. Good, that's right. That's good. Yeah. yeah. But what I think is funny, uh, Paul, in conversations we've had, I can only ever get you to agree when I put it a very specific, like certain way, and that's just to say that I don't think there are two knowledges, faith versus reason. There's only one way of knowing, I try. but what sin has done is, you know, incapacitated in such a way that what the net gain that we see around or that we experience tends to be lies that cause such devastating evil that it would seem mm. like, you know, uh, it's totally misheaded. So that's what we're rescued from uh, yeah. for sure. But it's not as if we don't still participate in the same truth. Maybe part of this, I'm struggling myself as to how my what is my perspective and orientation mm-hmm. going to be because i do feel i feel all that you guys said you know there's such great relief with this understanding 
hey, this thing doesn't all rest upon complete negativity of rescuing mm-hmm. people. So there is that, and, and I feel that. But then on the other side, I also recognize that universalism gone bad. Yeah, Rob Bell. Yeah, would you put it? I don't know enough about Rob Bell. Would you well, I, you used to have the illustration in class, you know, oh, I picked up the book Love Wins. I read the first page and realized what he was doing. And I think you're right in a sense that... Uh, that was probably not very fair. No, but, you know, I don't know, your illustration, not mine. <laughs> but I, I think you, I think your uh, reaction that you offered up in your blog, and I really like this, I think it's so true, is to make eternal destination the most fundamental thing about Christianity is to miss what Christianity is all about. Right, right. Or to think, think because you're right, I mean, I think you're 100% right in the sense that when you approach it like that, it almost of necessity becomes like an issue that has to be resolved akin to theodicy. And then you get but into those I, types of necessary arguments. Yeah. But what Christianity may in fact be about, though, is God creating all things and bringing all those things which he has created to a good end. Yeah, absolutely. That really might be what yeah. Christianity yeah. is about. And so, that again, and that's Jerzak's you know, summation. He's saying that, and this is to kind of bring it full circle. It's like, well, if God is willing, which I think that he is, and if he's able to bring all things to a good end, then to not do so would to demonstrate that he's either unable to do it, like he's incompetent, or perhaps even that he's evil. And so, so I guess like... Well, as I say, to be honest with you, Matt, you keep saying that, and I feel like putting it that way smacks of theodicy to an ex- It makes me very uncomfortable. I just don't think that we have to enter into a sort of logical, if A is true, uh, you know, and B is going to be true, then this has got to be the case. I'm afraid that that takes us to a type of understanding that, again, just tries to be a theodicy or tries to have this argument from necessity. I'm much more comfortable with just saying, well, this is who God is. And we know that God has revealed in Christ he is overcoming evil. So are we going to be a part of that or not? And maybe that's even Paul's hesitation with the word necessity. I don't know. Well, but it just sounds maybe, so yeah. much like the argument, is God good? Well, it you know, if, if God is going to be good, then we have to get into, like, the best of all possible worlds. We have right, to, right, right. All those types of constructions right. I just find to be so problematic in the sense that what they usually assume is God works linearly through cause and effect in the same right. way that we understand cause and effect. To me, it's like I don't—we obviously want to avoid the odyssey, and we don't want to justify, you know, any of that stuff. But I guess in a simple way, though, to say that, well, in spite of all the terrible evil and sin and death that exists, God is willing. And in the sense that he's good. He's willing to save us. He's able to bring it to pass. He has brought it, in fact, uh, to pass in Christ and his life and death and resurrection. And that you can rest assured that God loves you. <laughs> and all that stuff is really yeah. good news. Yeah. 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 See, I like it put that way so much better because you're just working from the doctrine of God then. You're saying, well, right. God has said that he is good. God has said that he is love. God has even demonstrated his love in Christ. And that that's what the cross is. And so we can make the cross about an exchange or, you know, all these sort of different sacrificial sort of atonement theories and penal substitution and all that. But what I really like about what Hart wants to say about the cross first and foremost, is that it's a revelation. It's the highest, most pure revelation of God's 
outpouring love, sacrificial love for uh, his creatures. And you will like this, Paul, uh, in this discussion and thinking back through this has really made me uh, go cold on Anselm. Because oh, I think... Uh, <laughs> I think... Uh, I think at least in Crudeus Homo, yeah, I, I guess when you start thinking in terms of universal theosis or something along those lines, then any conversation about an impingement upon God's honor is sort of Ooh. foolish. Silly, <laughs> it's just, silly, you yeah. know, it is very silly. Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right. It's a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.